and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity podcast. I'm Christine Burns, and before introducing this episode properly, I'd like to explain to the many regular subscribers which the channel has now attracted that, sadly, my mother died last weekend on May the 17th. I hope you'll all understand that dealing with such a close bereavement means some things must slip. And one of those casualties is the programme of new and original interviews I was planning. I don't want to let regular listeners down, though. For the next couple of weeks, I'm therefore revamping some one-to-one interviews which I'd done in the past for another channel. For some of you, this may mean that you've heard the material before. However, I know that these interviews will also be new to many of you, too. I do hope that normal service can resume soon. As a former concert trooper, my mother was the first to drill into me that the show must go on. And so to this week's look into my archives. This interview with the internationally prominent trans rights lawyer and campaigner Professor Stephen Whittle was recorded at his home in the summer of 2007 before his multiple sclerosis had really begun to bite into routine. We covered many aspects of his life in this in-depth conversation, but I began by asking him about his childhood background. Stephen, you're perhaps unarguably one of the best-known trans people in Britain, if not the world, these days. And yet, I have a feeling that really behind your campaign facade, people probably know very little about you as a person, as an individual, as a family man, and so on. So I'd like to explore that with you. And perhaps if I can take you back to your youth and uh, actually how you grew up. You, you originally came from Manchester, didn't you? I did indeed. I came from Manchester. I was raised in a council house on the Withenshaw estate, which was at the time the biggest council estate in Europe. Um, my dad worked as a cleaner at a local chemical company. Well, not, for, not when I was actually born, but shortly afterwards he got a job as a cleaner. A very uneducated man himself with very reactionary and repressive views about all sorts of things in life and uh, was not averse to giving the good clip round the backside with the belt, you know, at all. Um, and it was a bit of a tough childhood, really. Um, I was a very... I was a pretty unhappy child. It was quite a big family, wasn't it? There were five kids and we lived with my nanny as well. So there were five kids in one bedroom, <laughs> mum and dad in the other and nanny in the box room. And uh, in some ways, you know, I have to say, the clo- there's still a certain level of closeness amongst my siblings in that uh, we did all go through that together. And I wouldn't say it was, um, uh, and I have to say, it was not a dreadful childhood. But it was never a happy childhood. And there's a sort of line somewhere between that where um, seeing everybody else being happy and knowing that you're always unhappy is is quite depressive, depressing as a, a kid. How were you aware of your trans identity in those days? Well, when my brothers were born, who were younger than me, I, they got clothes that I really wanted. Oh, I wanted them so much. <laughs> um, but obviously didn't think of being trans per se. I knew I was very unhappy being a girl. What was the worst part of that? Clothes for school. Oh, my, my transsexuality is very orientated around clothes. I used to think, well, I was just a transvestite. <laughs> but it was very orientated around the sort of expectations of what girls should wear and 
what they should do with their lives. So there was the two things. What you could, what you could wear. I mean, my father hit my mother the first time she wore slacks, and we were on a camping holiday in a tent. This idea that skirts were the absolute order of the day, you know, and a certain style for young women. And then on top of that, also the whole expectations of what I was allowed to do, and in particular what I was meant to be when I grew up, which was to become a secretary and marry an engineer fairly quickly and have five kids myself. Um, I didn't think the issue through really until I was about ten. And I, I, the story is quite well known. I, we had sports day at school and there were boys races and there were girls races. And I just knew I was in the wrong race and I was never going to get into the right one. And I remember crying my eyes out realising this. That was the sort, my sort, you know, flash of light on the road to Damascus. Um, did you have a language for it? I mean, did you did you feel transsexual, or did you think you were lesbian? Or? Well, of course, at first I didn't have a language for it at all because I knew, you know, I wasn't thick. I knew that I wasn't a boy, um, you know, in the conventional sense of what a boy was. But I knew I couldn't live my life as a girl and a woman, and then an el- older woman, and just couldn't do it. It wasn't until. Well, in the late 60s, early 70s, particularly with the April Ashley case uh, being in the newspapers, I sort of knew that sex changes were possible, at least the other way round. But it wasn't until I was 17 that I really got a language before. So before that, I was reading books in the corner of the library, and I thought I must be some sort of butch lesbian. But I knew... That really didn't click. For a start, I wasn't just attracted to women. I've always been attracted to men as well as women. And secondly, the notion of being a woman in bed just appalled me. Um, When I was 17, though, I went to the GPs one day for about another matter, and I read this article in Woman's Realm, and it was about a female-to-male transsexual. And that, I knew, was me. And I knew, absolutely knew at that point, that that was where I had to target my life. And interestingly, when I got home that evening with my sore throat, which I'd originally gone about, I actually collapsed with some sort of strange ear problem. So I was was flat out on my back in bed for eight weeks. And I would say it it was almost as if my whole world was suddenly unbalanced. I'd lived my life trying to be as good a girl as I could be. Not in the sense of being feminine, but being a good girl. In other words, I became a Queen's Guide. I did really well at school. I was house captain, cricket captain, deputy head girl. You know, my whole life was concentrated on being active as a good girl, but I could see the only prospect in front of me was being some sort of old... um, Lesbian wearing a sort of tweed skirt and coat. But you you sought out the company of of, of lesbian women. Well, not until I was um, seventeen or eighteen. I mean, I, I'd had crushes on people at school, I'd had crushes on girls at school, and I had crushes on teachers. But I put it down to just being young, and the crushes gradually sort of would disappear. I'd also, however, also had crushes on boys. So, you know, I was a bit confused (laughs) with it all. Um, It wasn't until I was a lot older that I was able to piece it together for myself, really, in a way which I could understand. 
Um, I tended to have boyfriends because it was not possible to have girlfriends. Um, and it was, I say, when I discovered that being transsexual was possible, I suddenly realised that that had to be my sole target in life. Um, when I was 18, I joined the only organisation I could think of joining, which was the Campaign for Homosexual Equality, the lesbian group. And through that, I also met a, another group of lesbian women. I'd always been very political. I'd always been a socialist, um, very die-hard, red socialist. And when they suggested the notion of setting up a lesbian collective whereby women would work together to create something better, um, this seemed the ideal place for me because I couldn't have the sex change at the meantime because I still haven't found anybody. We're talking about the 1970s now, aren't we? Yes, we're talking about the 1970s. So I joined the Lesbian Collective in 1973. I transitioned in 1975. So there were about two years in which I was involved with the Collective. They were wonderful. When I, I went to the last Women's Liberation Conference in Britain, in Edinburgh, in 1974. And it was great. There was also, you know, the, the ridiculous conversations like, could lesbians wear skirts? Um, it seemed to me they could, you know, <laughs> if they chose to. Because um, I was a free and liberal. Anybody could wear what they liked to wear. Um, but I was pretty uncomfortable. And then on the last night, there was a big party. And I just remember being in the hall. They did it, about 600 women. They all took off their clothes and danced circle dances naked. Uh, how did I miss that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I just couldn't do it, I'm afraid. I um, I pressed my back against the wall and slid round the room until I could find the exit. It just was not me. And when I got, we got back on the coach, we at Maggie's having coffee the next morning, and I said, well, I have to say to you, it's confirmed to me something, and that is, I think I'm a man, and I think I'm going to have to do something about it. I'm still struggling to find anywhere yet, but I, I should be honest with you. And they were just great. I remember Maggie running around the flat, opening cupboards, finding old jackets and ties from her butch days. Um, and in fact, they said, you know, the next night they were going to take me out to a club up in Ashton called The Gaslight, where there was a transsexual woman. And I met Carol there. And along with Carol and her friends, Stan and Linda and Roy, we actually set up um, the Manchester TVTS support group in it was in Stan's flat in Ron's house on Camp Street in Salford. Um, but within a, it was you know it was it was the very first trans support group here in the UK um, that included transsexual people. Um, and within about six weeks actually we were running out of space in Stan's flat because it was only a bed set. <laughs> <laughs> sat on the bed, sat on the everything you could think of, you know, two dozen people in the room. And uh, so we we actually went to a new chaplaincy that had been built at the university and they very kindly gave us a room. And the Manchester group just flew after that, 50 or 60 people turning up each week. Coming back to yourself, though, you obviously at some point had to come out to your family and to your friends and obviously also approach your doctor. Which of those came first? I approached my doctor first. I approached the doctor. I was starting the process of finding the doctor when I actually told my friends 
my family I didn't actually choose to tell. Um, I had a hospital appointment um, to see the psychiatrist for the first time. And they rang up my home, not my home, I was living somewhere else, but for some reason they rang up my parents' home because they still had that number on the records for my name. Spoke to my sister and said it was about me and it was about my appointment about seeing somebody about a sex change. So that was my first really bad experience of the health service in this field. And of course, my sister told my mother, and, and the next thing I was accused of causing Granny Whittle's death because she'd heard about it. So why the bloody hell did you tell her? I was it was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. And you you didn't have much support from the doctor either. Oh no, I mean I I went to see a man in Manchester who various people had said he knew about transsexuals. In fact, years later I realised he'd seen about three male to female trans women and I was the first female to male he'd ever seen. And furthermore, if you count up backwards from me, there's only about a dozen people before me who were female to male who actually obtained any surgery here in the UK. You know, afterwards the, the, the flood gates gradually opened bit by bit until we had a huge flood in 96, 97 of people coming out. And that was very specifically because of the film The Decision that was shown, which was about accessing healthcare for trans men. But it was, back in the 70s, it was, it was very rough. I was very lucky. I had a very supportive trade union. Um, I worked at Manchester Poly then as a technician. And I had a very good supportive line manager who was just a wonderful man. And he, I took a fortnight off holiday, on holiday, and he kept in touch, and during that fortnight he got everybody to practice saying good morning, Stephen. And uh, he collected me for work on the day I was going back and took me in and introduced me. And, you know, he was just fabulous. It was a bit rough. But when you, you were told at some point that you would never be able to transition, you'd never be a man. Oh, yes. I mean, I mean, when I transitioned at work was because the doctor had told me that he would, if I wanted to have a sex change I had to live for a man for at least three months before they'd ever start any hormone therapy now in fact to me it was ridiculous I had this squeaky little voice up here I was small um, not feminine I was the sort of I looked like a very sporty girl in fact I never had any problems getting boyfriends because I was such a sporty girl I was a very sporty girl in fact um, so you know but despite that I never looked butch <laughs> Well. You looked very handsome the one time I saw you in Camp Street in 1976. <laughs> I was very handsome. Um, but I think the thing for me was that I transitioned in the work. I mean, it was, it was a nightmare because I'd done my three months, was waiting for my appointment to go back after a lot of pestering. I got it eventually six months later. But which time I'd been in work for, you know, nearly nine months as Stephen. And the psychiatrist just turned around to me and said, Nope, I'm not treating you. You will never be able to live your life as a man. That's it. Flat and final. Go. What did that do to you? Well, I went home to commit suicide. I was absolutely devastated. I was 19, early 20, just coming on to 20. I'd finally seen a, a gateway open. You know, how on earth was I going to... I remember thinking, what am I going to tell everybody at work? All your bridges are burned by this point. Oh, absolutely. I'd changed my name. I'd changed my tax records. I'd, I'd changed everything. Um, 
and then just to be told I had to go back and change it all back and never have this prospect and I went home to commit suicide but fortunately my then GP was actually sat in her car at the doorstep as I arrived home she said she'd heard from the psychiatrist and she arrived with a prescription for hormones because she was going to completely overrule him she said no you're perfectly sane you know exactly what you're going to do and I think it'll be the best thing you ever do well she was right about that wasn't she absolutely I would have made a very sort of strange looking woman at this point <laughs> so you're obviously now progressing through your transition you've got to find work and, and, and survive really how did you I mean how was that in the now we're into the early 80s aren't we well, the late 70s, early 80s was all terrible, in fact. I was saying, you know, the 80s passed in a blur of horror. Um, job losses. Um, oh, landlords discovering and wanting to kick us out of where we were living. It just went on and on and on. And it was so exhausting, dealing not only with being poor, but also dealing with trying to survive, doing any job that came along. Literally, you know, I'd cleaned so many houses garden, you name it, anything to make a living and eventually, I mean I lost a job in 1985 and I mean, I hit rock bottom really I'd already decided I wanted to start doing a law degree, the prospect of surviving the 80s was really difficult uh, just by 1985 I'd, I'd had enough Sarah persuaded me to consider doing a law degree, well not a law degree actually a law course um, I'd started painting and decorating for myself at that point and I'd started employing a couple of other people working for me. Um, the nice thing about that was I was the boss. If they didn't like who I was, they could stuff off and not have the wages. It was as simple as that. But I had a business partner drop out a year into the business when he discovered because I hadn't told him. So I lost a lot of money on um, had a garage workshop business and that just went completely... He was the main mechanic... I mean, I was just a learning mechanic, you know, but it just went completely. And all in all, you know, just really felt awful. So I took the law course, and it was at Manchester Met, and it was two evenings a week, and lots of it was very boring. <laughs> but I could do it, and it fascinated me. And, you know, I'd originally gone for a bit of business and contract law, and suddenly this whole world of law opened up and it was all really exciting, despite learning it being boring, but the actual law was really interesting. And I just started to think, you know, if I did this, well, maybe i never get a job as a lawyer because nobody will employ me, but I might be able to do something about making a change. I might be able to take my own case about myself to do something or help other people take their cases. So was there a point then where you decided, because you, you, obviously now everybody now knows about your, your background, where, how did you introduce that to your colleagues in the law department? I didn't tell people in law until I finished my actual law degree and there was a studentship on offer for a PhD, so I applied. I'd already done my final year dissertation on transsexuals and the law, but I didn't tell anybody by background. And I got a terrible mark for it, which, when I looked back at it, was just dreadful, because it was still bloody good work. <laughs> I, I think back and I think, oh my God, you know, the, the prejudice that just existed from writing it. Anyway, I applied for the PhD studentship, which was to do a PhD on football crowd control. 
and it went to somebody else who went to far many more many more matches than me I did but I still thought you know I want to do a PhD so I asked how much it was going to be and I realised I could support myself I could do it through the business as long as I did it part time I could do it through the business and went to and they said what do you want to do it on and I said transsexuals of the law and they proceeded the panel to sit there and say well that's impossible you know um, there's oh there's nothing much to be written on this you know they just want birth certificates and marriage rights um, <laughs> that was all it was and furthermore I could never actually do any research on this area because you could never get to meet these people and I, I, one of the things I was going to do was do a survey and interview people and I remember them saying how on earth are you going to do a survey with any sort of valid numbers you know what are you going to meet one or two transsexual people at best if you hang around the clubs in Manchester but do you really want to go and hang around those sorts of places and uh, I just thought it's outrageous really so I just sat there and said look I know hundreds of transsexual people and they stopped and they said what how how do you know transsexual people I said well because I am one and I was even more horror in their faces and their mouths dropped open with shock and then one of them said what I mean do you what do you you dress up, do you? I mean, what, what do you do about your beard? <laughs> I just said, no, 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 you stupid people. <laughs> <laughs> and and we got through it eventually. I had one very, very good supporter there, Professor Steve Redhead, who's now at Brighton, who just believed in me and thought I could do it. You know, and I actually think now, you know, <laughs> I've, you know, partly through, mostly through his inspiration, I'm now a professor myself. But it went through, it was tough, I did a master's degree alongside it, I ran the business, gradually winding down the business and taking a research assistance post, getting my first teaching post, until eventually I got a proper teaching post, a permanent one, in 1994. I could say, hmm, that's it, <laughs> I'm going to become a university academic. I had thought about becoming a solicitor at Barrister, but I was convinced I would never, ever get employment as a transsexual person but one of the things about universities is of course that they're they're very um, forgiving places you know you can be who you want as long as as long as you wear some decent clothes you don't look obscene but they can be any sort of clothes you want to wear um, and you can have all sorts of peculiarities about you you could be black you know <laughs> you could be disabled so your academic career is very nicely dovetailing, of course, with the beginnings of Press for Change as well. So you became an activist. Oh, absolutely. The two just came together completely. Doing the PhD, well, provided the basis for Press for Change's work. Those initial surveys and reports started us off and we knew what we had to do first, which was to get employment protection, forget marriage and birth certificates. That was way down the line. The first thing we needed was a job. Some economic security. Absolutely. Some economic security. You know, a job. I mean, looking back now, I mean, we, we think back now that it's 15 years of, of, of graft. If you wanted to sort of put it into a nutshell, how would you, how would you describe that? How would I describe what? <laughs> press for change. Oh, press for change. I mean, press for change was a marvellous idea. Um, it actually gave... Well, it's about... Press for change is about the community speaking for itself. Our role is to provide them with the expertise to give the opinions 
and to voice the views that they want to voice. And I think we've succeeded very well in that. It's a model that people don't understand at first, is it? Because I think people are used to the idea of organisations that tell them what to do or do it for them. People are very used to the idea of top-down organisations. I remember speaking at a thing in the States once and explaining how Press for Change worked and how we didn't have committee structures and people didn't have fancy names and titles and hierarchical systems. And then I finished speaking, and then they all said, right, now we've got to go into the meetings to organise the new chapters of It's Time America. We've got to find out who are going to be the chairs of each chapter. I remember sitting there thinking, oh, my God, have you heard nothing. It's about, press for change is about commitment, right? It's about commitment. It's about commitment to learning and about commitment disseminating that knowledge then. And it's not just about us, the vice presidents doing it. All we do is manage the mechanisms that enable us, as well as everybody else, to get the expertise and knowledge that we need. It also enables us to choose, to pick and choose our, choose our cases to go forward, to put our ideas down in writing and get them out to everybody to read to. But it is, it would not work but for everybody but the Vice Presidents of Press for Change. Why do you think it's a model that very few other organisations have picked up? I think most organisations don't understand the model at all because Press for Change is about cooperation. It's a very feminist sort of model, isn't it? Oh, uh, it stems right back. As a model, it stems right back to the the early feminist movement of the 1970s and I suppose, you know, very influential were also the peace movement and the young socialists movement on it, the idea that... um, you know, it was possible to reach consensus and to do actions together. Maybe you didn't agree with every single little bit of it, but there was enough consensus for nobody to be offended in what you're doing. We didn't have to fight amongst ourselves. We had enough people to fight on the outside. What has being an activist meant to you, though, Stephen? I mean, being an activist has been a sort of essential part of my life in many ways. It's contributed an immense amount to the building of the sort of person I am and what I believe is possible from people and what I think people are capable of doing and I think it's a tremendous amount if they're given the right support and access to the information that they need and the enthusiasm behind persuading them that they do have a voice and that they can use it and to to that extent to me that's partly why I teach of course it's tremendous pleasure in seeing other people become fulfilled in themselves and for many years of course trans people would just we could change sex but we could never become full members of society and I love the fact that we now see trans people in all walks of life and in other countries in government and I hope one day we'll see people in government here um, as part and representative of the community that makes up this country Now, we've come this far through your story, and we've not really touched on your family, and in particular your wife, Sarah. You met her back in the 1970s, didn't you? Tell me about that. Sarah and I met in 1979. She was the babysitter (laughs) of the person I was going out with at the time. But, uh, I mean, it was was, um, uh, an amazing moment when I met her. I just knew I'd fallen head over heels in love. It was love at first sight. Um, and we've been together now for 28 and a half years. 
Um, I don't regret a minute of it, actually. It's been a wonderful, marvellous relationship. She's taught me to be the sort of man that I can be. Um, she's always had the most amazing integrity and provided the most incredible level of support, having herself been, you know, being fundamentally a very private person. Um, but she has facilitated, facilitated and enabled me to do what I've done. Um, and I couldn't have, I couldn't have asked for a better partner ever in life. Um, I was just thinking this morning, you know, after 28 years, it, it really does feel like a very short space of time. I've never felt burdened by any of those years. And of course now we have four kids by donor insemination, and they're thriving and taking off themselves now. And I hope that as parents, we've put into our parenting practice the principles we agree in we fundamentally agree in life, you know, that we shouldn't be frightened of things, that we hope our kids have the confidence to take on new projects, new ideas, relationships, to work through them and all the problems that come with them. I hope they've seen a model of what a really good relationship can be like. And throughout that, we've been completely open about how we met, why their donor inseminated, my background, and... Right from the word go, and they've just taken it as absolutely norm, the norm, and they've got great, they're incredibly tolerant people, yet the one thing they won't tolerate, quite rightly, is intolerance. And, um, no, I think that they're going to be great people in the future. Now, of course, the two of you had to wait a very long time to try to get married, but you finally did in 2004. Why was that then important to you both after what about 25 years of being together anyway well actually we got married in 2005 so it was 26 years of being together <laughs> um i think marriage initially marriage was not important i mean marriage what what impact would that have on our relationship well none at all as it quite rightly has had no impact on it so we did worry about getting divorced <laughs> after we got married um I think it was very important for the, sh the children's security and for me it was very important for Sarah's security issues like survivor pension benefits um, our main concern with the children was that if Sarah ever had a terrible accident and died for whatever reason our children would technically be homeless orphans yes they may I would still be there but we'd have people evaluating whether I could be a good father to them I didn't want, you know, could you imagine the children having to go through the fear of going into foster homes when their mother just died? I mean, it would be awful. It would be awful. So it was about tidying up ends. But I have to say that on the day, which was absolutely marvellous, that Sarah walked into the church. This was the key moment for me. She walked into that church. She was beautiful. But she also carried a golden aura with her. And the biggest smile I've ever seen on her face. And it made me realise that this hadn't been all about me and our community, but this had been about all the people who love us as well and letting them have the status that they should have, you know, to allow my mother to be the mother to a son, to allow Sarah to be the wife and to allow my children to have the father who they'd always known. And... That was key, I think, a key point in recognising that what we do is not just about transsexual people, 
it's about a much wider group of people and actually it's about the whole world the whole of society recognizing that being different does not mean being wrong now of course you've been honored in many ways you've got the OBE you've had the award from liberty and justice the human rights award you're now a professor as well you've got 30 40 years of experience behind you at this point people would often be thinking about resting back on their on their laurels but one i don't think you can but also at this point of course in your life you also you've now been explaining to people your illness as well that must feel absolutely so cruel and awful to you that that should happen yes having ms um being diagnosed five years ago and and the consequences of it which have not been very easy has not been easy to put together in the picture of all this you know i thought i'd done my bit with hospitals and having to return now and discover i have more healthcare appointments and work appointments some week <laughs> some weeks is very hard to do in fact um but i do accept that you know you just take what's thrown at you for years we've fostered stray dogs and had stray dogs and one of the things I often noticed was that when a dog has been stray, astray they have a tough time of it they often die earlier than other dogs but they often develop illnesses and cancers and things as well and I think I'm sure part of it has to do with poverty and of course mine was a very poor childhood initially until um, my father managed to get promotion and such like and I think we also lived, you know, it's post-war, rationing was still there when I was born. And I, I think as a consequence of that, you know, we're just a family of people who are the equivalent of strays. And one of the things that really bugs me about healthcare is the fact that there is still such a considerable regional difference between healthcare practice, people's lifetime possibilities, their likelihood of developing ill health and such like and and you know in a modern britain with a modern nhs we must move be moving beyond that eventually um the postcode lottery is a farce that should never have existed and the fact that it's been going on so long is absolutely dreadful and again this isn't just about trans people though we obviously feel it and are very aware of it but but about everybody isn't it Oh, absolutely. I'm absolutely. I mean, just as an example, being somebody with MS, I'm very aware of the limited range of services there are in my home region um, compared to some others. Um, and if I want certain services, having to fight to go out of area for them. And for anybody, this is this is ludicrous. Not only bearing in mind you know, and I hate one of the things that we learnt from Thatcherism <laughs> one of the things we learnt from Thatcherism was always to say bear in mind there is a limited amount of money to go round well of course there never was before because in fact we worked hard to make more money we lived in a society where we knew if we worked hard we would make it better unfortunately Thatcher demolished all that but we now have to move forward and hopefully we will under a new Prime Minister, to a sense that it is possible to continue to grow and to develop without just doing retail. <laughs> now, you've been on record before saying that you don't ever regret having been trans, and in fact you, you celebrate it. Do you still feel that way? Oh, absolutely. Um, not only was it the best thing I ever did for me, 
it was the best thing I could have done in many ways for my life because it just has taught me so much and made such fantastic friends. It's been a privilege to work with a group of people who are so incredibly hardworking, bright and yet so tolerant and willing to give to other people. It's an absolute lesson in life that um, I wish lots of churches would come and see. <laughs> the generosity of trans people to each other and to other people is astonishing. And we've travelled the world as a family, and I've travelled the world, world personally as a result of the work that I've put in. If you were doing it all again, would you do any, any one thing differently? Would I do any one thing differently? Hmm. <laughs> be born 30 years later perhaps no 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 because of course if I'd been born 30 years later it would have all been so much easier and it wouldn't have influenced me in the way that it has influenced me and that's crucial you know at times it's been very tough you know in the, eight, in the 70s it was a bit like hell you know you've been transported into it and wondered what you'd ever done wrong but it all adds up to being things that you develop and learn from. And sometimes, in my far-off wildest dreams, I try to think what it would have been like, as I watch my son grow in particular, what it would have been like not to be trans. And there are aspects of it that certainly seem very attractive. But then, on the other hand, this has had its own attractions too. So, yeah, no, I'd do it again. And for this, this generation of trans people, the young people? I think the most important thing that this generation, the next generation of young trans people, needs to remember is that if they go and disappear, as it's so tempting to do, if they go off and pretend that they're real men and real women, by which they mean, I don't mean that anybody's unreal, but why, by which they disguise their history and they disguise who they are now, they will do themselves a great disservice and they will do an immense disservice to generations to come because, of course, we'll disappear again. And the next generation, whereas this generation has had all us to look at, the next generation will have nobody to look at except a bunch of old fogies. <laughs> Stephen, thank you very much. Thank you.